You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Now, uh, if you have a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll continue in our series in Hebrews today. And uh, if you're waiting for a Hebrews journal, I promise we're getting those. Uh, we, y'all had a run on Crossway. Crossway is like, how many Christians y'all got in West Virginia? We didn't know that we needed to print so many of these journals. And so um, we'll get you one of those as soon as we can, I promise. I think there was one in the lobby. And so uh, I know we ran out of those, but um, you guys showed up more than we expected, which is a good thing. But um, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. But as we continue uh, in Hebrews, we're going to finish chapter 2 today. And we're going to look at this doctrinal idea, this big idea doctrine, that Jesus is our brother. And um, we, we typically don't refer to Christ as our brother, but Hebrews is going to make the case that he is our brother. Now, what we do do is, is we refer to one another as brother a lot. Uh, a, a very scientific study uh, had the results that the people in America that use the word brother the most are, number three on the list was rednecks, um, number two on the list was Christians, and number one was not a group of people, but one man himself, Hulk Hogan. And... That's who uses the term brother the most, okay? So we're right, we're, we're working on overtaking Hulkster. Uh, we're not quite there yet, though. But, um, but as we look at this idea, uh, we're going to see the case made that Jesus is our, our big brother, spiritually speaking. Now, I don't know if you have brothers, but if you do, um, I would imagine that you have um, a mixed bag of experience with brotherhood. Um, I only have two sisters, and they were incredibly mean to me. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that, Jamie. The whole, the whole room just like looked toward you just now. Um, they're super nice to me now that we're all adults most of the time. But, um, but I didn't have a brother. But if you have a brother, I feel like the story of brother is always like fighting each other, you know, like making each other bleed and then begging, like, please don't tell mom, I'll make it right, whatever it takes. Um, but Jesus isn't that kind of brother. Jesus is a perfect brother. Um, he is the perfect friend, Scripture tells us. And, and he is our advocate. Hebrews is going to make the case that he's an advocate, mediator, and high priest to God the Father. Now, Jesus is God. Hebrews has spent the first chapter and a half making it clear that Jesus has deity, that Jesus is God, that in this trinity that we see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that our relationship and being drawn to the Father is accomplished by God the Son. And theologically, we're going to see the case today that Jesus is not only our Savior, uh, but our brother, which makes him relationally close to us. He's not a savior that we can't be close to. He's a savior that is close like a brother. And so those of you that like to, especially you young people, that like to use bro all the time, or it's actually bruh nowadays, like you call your mom bruh, bruh, I'm getting to it, I'm going to clean my room. Like this is the sermon for you because Jesus is your bruh, theologically speaking, Okay. So I have four things I want to show you. Number one, our brother suffered for us in his redemption of us through the cross. Secondly, our brother is not ashamed of us. Isn't that good news? Jesus is not embarrassed about you. I know lots of people that are embarrassed by me, um, namely my wife, but a lot of others too. But Jesus is not embarrassed or ashamed of us. Thirdly, our brother came for us. In the incarnation, Jesus came to rescue us. And fourthly, we'll look at how our brother understands us. He understands what we're going through. 
Let's look at our brother suffering for us, point one. I'll try to pick up where Pastor Jeremy left off last week in verse 10, and we'll cover through verse 18 at the end of the chapter. Verse 10 begins with the word for, so I feel it necessary for me to back up to a verse that Jeremy covered last week, verse 9, and so we'll back up and reread that just to make sure we have the context. Verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 2 says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What a, what a mind-blowing and amazing truth that, that through grace, Jesus, God the Son, would taste death for everyone. That, that means that even if, even if people go their entire lives and reject the gospel, never become Christians, that in some way they benefit from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. The world is a better place because of Jesus' death. Um, you, you have to reckon with the fact that, that Jesus lived. Um, almost no one argues that he didn't live, that we base our, our measurement of years off of his life, that, that you have to reckon with the fact that Jesus lived and he was killed. And I would argue that because of that, the world is an, an increasingly better place. The idea of a hospital was originally a Christian idea, of Christians showing hospitality and caring for those who are sick and need doctors and care. The general idea of benevolence, care, and kindness on earth stems from Christianity. The hope of the gospel presence and the opportunity to repent given by God is a good thing for everyone on earth. And the reality is that none of this grace would exist without the suffering and death of our big brother, Jesus. And so we pick up where we left off last week in verse 10. In light of the fact that Jesus died for everyone, verse 10 says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We just sang this together. That in whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that, that all of the glory goes to God, that we are brought to him, and, and it is through him and for him that all things exist, that he gets this glory. Let me break this verse down for you in, in verse 10. Who is he? Are we talking about the Father or the Son in verse 10? It's important to get this clear. In verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, changing gears, because in verse 9, we see that God is referenced, meaning God the Father. So in verse 10, when it says, For it was fitting that he, he is referring to the Father. And then there's two prepositional phrases, which I'll deal with in a moment. But if we remove those, just get a clear picture of what verse 10 is telling us. It would read, for it was fitting that he, God the Father, should make the founder of their salvation, God the Son, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. That the Father made Jesus perfect through suffering. What's that mean? That doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect before his death on the cross. Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always been God. Jesus has always been sinless and holy and perfect. That's always been the case. There's never a time that that wasn't the case. But here, the word perfect in Greek carries the connotation of completion, that, that something had been completed, that through the death of Jesus on the cross, something was completed. He was made perfect in the sense that his mission was complete. My dad always taught me, that's my grandfather, he always taught me to work smarter, not harder. 
He always taught me, you, you, don't, you don't go about things the, the hardest and, and most difficult way. He would always say, the key is to take your time. He just never got in a hurry. He always walked around with his hands behind his back, just taking his time. And, and the beauty of that is that, that it's taught me in life that, you know, those of you that worked with me here in this building know that to be true. It's like, Will, Will ain't going to overexert himself ever, okay? Just patient and go with the flow, right? The key is to not get excited. Don't, don't go too fast. Work smarter, not harder. And that's how some of y'all aren't like that. But for most of us, success in our lives means doing something with the least amount of pain and inconvenience. I'm thankful that that's not the way our Savior operates. Our big brother, Jesus, did not say, well, how could I, how could I work the least in salvation? How could I avoid pain and suffering and saving my brothers and sisters. No. Jesus' completion of his mission was through suffering. That his mission was complete at the culmination of the gospel message, his death and his resurrection. This first prepositional phrase in verse 10 says, for whom and by whom all things exist, referencing the Father. You see, the Trinitarian, biblical, all-powerful God is our creator and everything is for him. And even the suffering of Jesus was for his glory. So everything we see, every ability we possess is ultimately for God's glory. The second prepositional phrase says, in bringing many sons to glory. And if you're a feminist, uh, welcome to the club and you're there getting offended. Let me, let me just include that in the Greek language, this would have by implication meant sons and daughters to glory. That in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that, that God is glorified in making us glorious. You think about that for a minute? That God gets glory not by, not by belittling us and pressing us down so that he can seem higher and more important. That he receives glory by bringing us into it. Presenting glory upon us. And there's a juxtaposition of Jesus dying for everyone in verse 9 and bringing many in verse 10. Many, not everyone, sons and daughters to glory in verse 10. And have you ever thought about this wild truth? That not everyone will receive this grace, but you, if you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, are imputed glory. I've not had very many glorious moments in my life. I don't know about y'all. Um, we, we were at a stadium a while back, um, the, I don't know what it's called, in Charleston, we're doing a track meet, Laidley, is that what it's called? Laidley. And uh, Micah was looking around at all those seats, and he's always talking about, I'm, I'm D1, bruh, like, I, D1 athlete, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the stadium filled, people chanting my name, right? And we were talking about, like, man, how cool would that be if every seat was filled and everybody was chanting, Micah, Micah. And then I started telling him how that happened to me. It didn't really. But I was like, I've been there, man. It's happened. Like what glory you would feel, right? The closest I got was like a few months ago at Williams River. I was in the middle of the river fishing for trout and a bald eagle flew. Like I just, I just felt red, white, and blue through my veins. Bald eagle flew right over my head. I'm flipping a jig. I was like, this is a glorious moment, right? We don't get very many glimpses of glory in our life. Usually it's quite the opposite. Usually our, our mundane lives are filled with non-glorious moments. But, but it, it blows my mind that God is bringing us into eternal glory. Let me continue to look at this in point two. Our brother, Jesus, is not ashamed of us. 
He's not embarrassed by us. And this is why this is so mind-blowing, the fact that God will bring us into glory is because even if you're a D1 athlete and you've had a stadium full of people chanting your name, at some point, you at least a little bit begin to lose the ability to run up and down the field or the court. You begin to put on some pounds, let alone dunk a basketball. I'm not speaking from experience or anything, but let's just say I might know a thing or two about that. That, that you know, when the eagle flies over your head at Williams River, the eagle is even shaking his head at you because you're tangled up and you got a bird's nest in your, in your reel and all those things. You know, I look at my life and sometimes I think, why would God choose me to bring me into glory? I'm a loser. The, the, my wife's embarrassed by me all the time. Why, why would God want me to be in his presence forever? And Hebrews teaches us this remarkable truth. That even though we are indeed losers, Jesus is not ashamed of us. Most churches you go to, you'd be like, oh, pastor, I, don't, I just, I, I'm a mess. I don't have it together. Like, they'll be like, oh, no, you're great. It's okay. New Heights, we're like, yeah, you suck. You are a loser. You've wrecked everything. What's wrong with you? But this is, this is, like, that's the bad news. This is the good news, though, because Jesus gets all the glory. That in spite of everything you've wrecked in your life and everything that you've messed up and how much of a loser you are and how much you've blown it, Jesus still says, I'm bringing you to glory. And guess what? I'm not even embarrassed by you. I'm not ashamed of you. When you're ashamed of yourself, your Savior, your big brother, is not ashamed of you. Look at verse 11. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. He who sanctifies is Jesus Christ. And it says of him, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Are y'all getting this? Does this blow your mind as much as it does mine? I um, went to this conference one time with a guy named Brent Beck. Some of y'all know him. And Brent, he owns B&E Menswear. He's always dressed to the nines. Like, at the time we went to this conference, I don't think I'd ever seen this man not wearing, like, a three-piece suit. Always had a tie on, always sharp-dressed man, because he sells suits for a living. And so we go to this conference. You know, it's in Virginia or somewhere. I think I was speaking at the conference, you know, and there's a little bit of pride in me. I want to I be presented well and, you know, have my crew look good when I walk in to preach at this conference, you know. So I've got my my church planner swag on and, you know, doing my thing as best I can. And Brent Beckett shows up to this conference. First time I've ever seen the man not wearing a suit. He's in sweatpants and he's got a do-rag on his head. And I'm like, man, what are you, what are you doing here, Brent? Like, I don't, you know, like, and I'm thinking, like, we're walking in and I'm like, man, should I ask him to go change? You know, and we joked about it later, but I was just like, I don't know how to deal with this. This do-rag guy, you know, that's old enough to be my dad. And and, you know, you think about moments like that and how often we might get embarrassed by people we're with or our spouses or our kids when our kids do crazy stuff, like you get embarrassed of them. There is not a split second in eternity that Jesus is embarrassed by you. It's absolutely mind-blowing. You remember Jesus' first miracle? He shows up at a wedding. He comes to the wedding, not, not just by himself, I, he might have had a do-rag on, I don't know. But he shows up in kind of an embarrassing way. He shows up with his Sunday school class and his mom. 
Like, I don't know any more embarrassing way to show up at a wedding than to have the dates be your, your church uh, friends that you're teaching a, a, you know, a small group with and your mom. No offense, mom. Um, I would love to take you to a wedding. But it's just not the vibe, you know. And, uh, and so he rolls in, and he ends up turning the water into wine. And I just think for the, for the nerdy disciples and for Jesus' mom, the, the whole demeanor changed. Like, yeah, I'm with the guy that made the party happen today. The guy that changed the water into wine can instantly make the best wine you've ever had. I'm with him, right? That's a microcosm of us in eternity. That, that not only is he not ashamed of us, but we get, like he makes us cool, right? Amen? We are with Jesus forever. And he secures our adoption. Verse 11 says that we're sanctified by Jesus, meaning that he secures our big brother, the firstborn of all creation, secures our adoption. Therefore, he's not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2.12, the next verse says, quotes from Psalm 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Psalm 22 that this is quoted from, contains many prophecies about Jesus' death that are fulfilled on the cross. Our volunteers got together and read some of these prophecies this morning. And the psalmist is speaking of Jesus going to the cross, dying for sins, and then drawing his brothers and sisters to the Heavenly Father, to heaven for eternity. And Hebrews also quotes the same idea from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18 in the next verse. In Hebrews 2.13, the writer says, Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, Jesus' mission was planned and commissioned by the Father. And the plan all along was to bring jacked up sinners like you into the presence of a perfect and holy God and make you like him. Children of God are given to Jesus through this atonement. And his death on the cross. Jesus spoke to it himself in his teaching in John chapter 10. He says of us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. What a beautiful rescue mission Jesus came on for us. Amen. Let's look at that rescue mission, point three. Our brother came for us. You've heard the word incarnation, particularly around Christmas we use that word. Incarnation, uh, the, the, the etymology of the word literally means to put on flesh. It means that Jesus, who is God, became a man. It is a crucial Christian doctrine that God became man. And this message that Hebrews is building on from Psalm 22 uh, communicates the dependence of the Messiah, that he, let, he, he lowered himself to the earth and laid down his glory and, and became dependent, just like any other baby, became dependent on his mother to survive. Uh, Psalm 22, let me read two more verses from it, uh, speaks to this. This is, Hebrews interprets this for us and tells us it's kind of from the context of the Messiah speaking. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. The son speaks to the father about this dependence that when he would lay his glory down and become man so that he could ultimately die for the sins of man, that he would 
humble himself and yield himself to suffering for us, fully yielding to flesh and blood to save flesh and blood. This, this beautiful and mind-blowing doctrine is that to save us who are flesh and blood, the Son of God had to become flesh and blood. And this is exactly the point that Hebrews goes to next in verse 14. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so in God's economy of justice, the punishment for sinful flesh and blood is God's wrath poured out upon sinful flesh and blood. So Jesus couldn't only be fully God. He had to also be fully man to be able to be a just and fair substitute for us. This is building upon the doctrine that Pastor Jeremy preached last week, the humanity of Jesus Christ. Think of a substitute in a sports game. It has to be equal and fair. If you put a basketball player into a game, one basketball player has to come out. If you put two in, two have to come out. It is unfair for you to put two basketball players into the game and only one comes out. And you also can't, can't put someone in that hasn't been registered on the book. That's called an administrative technical, I learned. I learned that this season. That if they're not registered as part of the team, you can't substitute them in. And so Jesus had to come and, and incarnate and be registered, be fully flesh and blood, so that he could be a just and fair substitute for us on the cross. And then at the cross, death is defeated by death. That, that our lives are saved and we avoid death through Jesus' death. And so what does Jesus become fully human for? So he can die ultimately. Verse 14 says that through death, Jesus destroys death and also the devil. Do we have that picture, that goofy picture? Yeah, look at this picture. If you've shared this on Facebook, I'm sorry, but this is hilarious, okay? This, I've, I've shown this at church before. This is like, I put it on my lock screen to remind me how dumb humanity can be sometimes. And this is why. Because this is how we tend to envision Jesus and Satan, like battling it out, arm wrestling. Listen, if I'm a betting man, and I am, um, I would put all my money on Satan. Wouldn't you? Like, look at Satan's biceps that's got lava in it. And Jesus, Jesus is there looking just kind of like a pansy in that drawing. And, and it, it, it envisions this cosmic struggle like, like we don't know who's going to win. That's not the picture the Bible paints. The Bible paints a picture of Satan ultimately and already being defeated. That anything that he carries out today is by the allowance of the sovereign God. That Satan is on a leash begging for permission from God of anything that he can do on earth. And so I don't want you to have in mind this, this cosmic struggle and you're, and you're hoping that Jesus can overpower Satan's influence in your life. No, Hebrews tells us that at the cross, Jesus destroyed death and the one who has the power of death, the devil. That is good news for us. And he has delivered us out of slavery, verse 15 says. That he has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. And we live in what we often call the already, not yet. He's already got the victory, but we still got to suffer and, and deal with sin and deal with uh, just the power of Satan in the world. We, we still have to wrestle through those things, but the reality is, is the, the victory is guaranteed to us. 
And verse 16 gives us this good news. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now this doesn't mean he only helps Jewish people. The offspring of Abraham is very clear. We see in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's clear that uh, Paul makes a case that anyone who is of faith is Abraham's son or daughter. And, and so in, in this, Hebrew says that he helps the offspring of Abraham, referring to the fact that he helps human beings. It's, it's not angels that he came to die for. Jesus came to die for men and women. Hebrews reminds us that we got something on the angels, redemption. We have something they don't. They don't get to be redeemed. No angel gets saved by Jesus. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for you. Fourth and final, our brother understands us. And I'll land the plane with this point. But, but I, want you, I really want you to drink this into your soul this morning. Don't leave here and let this just be another Sunday morning without, without understanding the massive implication that Jesus Christ understands exactly where you are. We'll talk tonight at church about, at, at the annual meeting about you know, our church growth. We've been celebrating new members. Like, it, it's, it's amazing. But as our church grows, it will get harder and harder for the pastors to know everything you're going through, that uh, that's just the reality of it. Even your friends and church family, it, we have limitations, and I think it is good for us to be reminded that Jesus always understands what we're going through, precisely what we're going through. Because of the incarnation, we have a spiritual big brother who understands us. Look at verse 17. The beginning of it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus was human, fully. He was like us in every respect. This has implications on what I call the hangnails, the heartburn, and the headaches. The, those little, like next time you have those little nagging things, you ever had a hangnail and you try to pull it off and it just keeps going up your finger and you think you're going to die? Like, you know Jesus, ha like statistically, he, ha he had to have had that happen at some point in his life. All of you laugh because you've been there, Right? Jesus had a hangnail that he ripped off at some point and was like, gosh, it's hard being human. That he, he probably ate too many tomatoes before bed sometime and had heartburn in the middle of the night. Like next time you wake up with heartburn, just to remind yourself, your big brother, he knows what that feels like. Or when you got a headache, your kids are driving you nuts, you just want them to shut up. Like Jesus, you see what he had to deal with the disciples? Like they were, they were annoying as all get out. Jesus just got his hand, you know, his hands over his head, like, gosh, I wish Peter would just shut up for once. He's always got a question, you know, he's just got a headache. Like, Jesus went through all those things. And it doesn't just say in most respects, it says in every respect. Because life is ultimately much harder than the hangnails, heartburn, and headaches, ain't it? There are a lot worse things that we go through than those things. And Jesus gets it. He understands. He knows how you feel when you go through those things that are more difficult than those trivial things. Let's read the rest of the chapter. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Remember that word, I'll talk about it. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus becomes our great high priest. This is one of the thesis ideas of the entire book of Hebrews. 
that Jesus becomes a high priest so that he can mediate between the people and God. This is, if you understand Old Testament theology, this is a Levitical need, that in the Levitical priesthood, men were set up to continually make mediation between the people and God through meticulous laws and sacrifices that had to be carried out in the worship of God. Jesus fulfilled it all and eliminated the need for us to bring an animal, a dove or a goat in here to slaughter today to be able to go before God. Jesus is our high priest. And so we don't memorialize animals in a, in a desperate attempt to week after week appease the Father and his wrath against our sin from this past week. Instead, we have tables around the room with the representation of the final death that was needed to appease the wrath of God. Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And we look back to it week after week. The word propitiation is a very important doctrinal word. The, the Greek word is halaskomai, and it means to appease the wrath of. Uh, it's sometimes translated atonement, which a good way to remember what atonement means is it makes us at one with God. It has that in the word atonement, or to appease God's wrath. Propitiation is the payment for sin. It is not merely expiation, which is the removal of sin. Now, propitiation does remove our sin, but the idea of expiation is just that God kind of magically wipes it away. God didn't just have a magic wand and say, you know what, all the things you've done wrong, just don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Could God have done that? Like logically? Sure, God can do whatever he wants. But would that be just and fair? Theologically, no, it wouldn't. If God just didn't worry about sin, would he be a just God? And the answer is no. Think about it. All the sin of all mankind, of all time, had built up, and it needed to be paid for. There was a debt that was against the perfect and holy God, that offended him, that needed to be paid for, that needed propitiation before we could come into his presence. Think about it in terms of a penny. If you've got a penny in your pocket, matter of fact, just get it out and use this as, a, as an object lesson. But, it, but if, if, if one small sin in your mind equals a penny, one small little you know, white lie that you tell, you sleep in, you miss church, you sinner, all right, that's, that's a penny, all right? So you drop a penny in the bucket, you say a cuss word when you shouldn't have, sometimes you might need to, but when you shouldn't have, you drop it, drop it in the bucket, and, and you go a week and you're like, dang, I got a lot of pennies in that bucket, and you start to realize how much you sin. But, but imagine also, the, like, like, big sins might cost several pennies. Like, if you kill someone, 100 pennies go in the bucket, right? And, and from, the, from the day you're born to now, you've accumulated all these pennies. You'd have a dump truck of pennies. Some of y'all would have a whole fleet of dump trucks. You look like the West Virginia DOH going down the road on a, salt, on a snowy day with salt, okay? A lifetime of sin would be so many pennies and not only would it be a lot of money, it would be an incredible amount of weight. Now imagine that being dumped on a person, how bad you'd feel. I'm sorry all my pennies fell on you. Imagine not just you, but all of us in this room and all the pennies we would accumulate. We'd probably fill up Milton. It'd be like ducktails in this room. You know, when the, when the duck jumps into the money, 
Or imagine not just in this room, but, but in the entire world. Now multiply that not only by the billions of people that are on the world today, but the, the people that have ever lived or ever will live. The amount of pennies is just unfathomable. Fill up a continent or maybe the entire earth. And biblically, what happens with all these pennies is that one moment in time in history, every single one of them is dumped out on Jesus Christ on the cross. In a sea of them, there's the, the little thing you screwed up this week. But all of it, all at once, dumped out on Jesus. And so you begin to understand, well, how could, how could the death of one man pay for the sins of the whole world well, well, not only is it the physical agony and suffering, but there is a spiritual reality that's happening on the cross. That all of the anger and wrath of God the Father that has been pent up, and right, like he knew all the sin you were going to commit before you were born, it's all stored up, and it's all expelled immediately upon the Son. This is why Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he feels the weight of all of your sin, and the sin of every person that would be redeemed poured out upon him. That's what propitiation is. That God, all at once, unloads the wrath forcefully onto his son, and the Father treats Jesus how he should treat all of us on the cross, so that he can justly and fairly treat us how Jesus deserved. And the beautiful side of that equation is that we are welcomed in to the presence of God free from every penny, free from every weight, free from every sin, because it's been paid for. It sounds unfair, but it's actually the only fair thing that can happen that results with us being in eternity with God, because now our sin is paid for. And because of that, this passage, as well as this beautiful verse in Hebrews 4.15 that I'll end with, says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you know that temptation that just sneaks up and catches you off guard all the time and you keep giving into it and you keep sinning in that way and you want so badly to break away from it because you want to please God, but you just keep going back to it. Jesus understands what that feels like, but he never gave in so that he could pay for you. And furthermore, every time you failed in that area, he felt it hit him on the cross. And so if you come and take communion today, as you take this piece of bread that represents his body, I want you to remind yourself that the weight of every single act of sin that you've ever committed and ever will commit hit that body on the cross. As you dip it into the juice that represents his blood that was shed for you, you be reminded that that was the payment so that you could have a relationship forever with God and that he would not be ashamed of you, that he would bring you to glory, that we will exist with him forever and let it truly blow your mind in gratefulness and joy and thankfulness. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.